realizing how great your love is for us. In your glory, we all pray. Amen. If you got your Bibles, go to the book of Ephesians. Did you guys have a good spring break? Cool. Very nice. Uh, I was in Ethiopia uh, last week, the last two weeks. We had a great trip. I know some of you guys are praying and have asked. Uh, we had a great trip. We talked to a lot of people who never heard of Jesus. Uh, one of our team members got taken to prison, uh, and uh, we got to go into a mosque and talk to a Muslim imam and tell him that Isa is in the Bible and he's the Holy One of God. So it was a great trip. Uh, the guy did get out of prison and he came home. So if you go on a trip with me, you may go to prison. That's all I got to say. Uh, go to Ephesians chapter 1. Um, we're going to start tonight um, walking through the book of Ephesians, and we're starting a series called In. Thirty times throughout the book of Ephesians, this phrase, In Christ, appears. And so you're going to understand why we're calling it In by the time we get done with this eight weeks, because what we're talking about is, is what is it we have in Christ Jesus? What does our identity look like in Christ Jesus? And that's kind of where we're going for the next eight weeks. So if you get bored easily, uh, you may get bored, but I don't think you're going to because we're going to dig into God's Word and dig into Ephesians and see what it has to say. Let me just say this before we kind of actually do dig in. Um, we have basically kind of made up a reading guide. It's on the Facebook group page for Refuge. If you're not a member, you can go join there. We've also got it in the back. Um, let me just say this. Um, this time, when we come into Refuge and, and I talk for 30 minutes, if that is the sum total of your Bible, uh, that's bad, right? That's really bad. So here's what we want to encourage you to do. We want you to be reading. We want to journey through this together as a group of people. And I know you've got, you may be doing like all kinds of different Bible studies and I'm not asking you to put that on hold but what we are asking you to do is if you're doing a Bible study already, add that to what you're doing. So every week you can read where we're going in Ephesians and be ready to come here. So this really becomes supplemental to what you're already reading in your quiet time. Because in eight weeks, we're not going to cover everything that Ephesians has to say. We're going to hit big topics and we're going to do a survey. But what I really could do is I could spend about eight months in Ephesians. right? I could spend one month in the passage we're going to be in tonight because there's so much stuff. Like I had a headache trying to put it all together for a 30 or 45 minute deal. So uh, we're going to be kind of moving pretty quick. So that's why it's really important that you guys read on your own. So you come in here and you're like, yeah, I'm ready to go. I'm ready. God's already taught me some stuff and I'm just ready to kind of let this be supplemental. Cool? Cool. Okay. Hey, let me pray for us. Uh, mostly for me. And then, and then we'll dig into God's word. Let's pray. Jesus, um, we just thank you that, that you have pursued us. And God, I love, I love that song, Come Thou Fount. And I love that line, Jesus, where it says that you sought us when we were strangers. God, you have chosen us. You have sought us. We did not give a rip about you. And so, Father, I pray that tonight that you would just illuminate the truth that you have sought us out. You've called us to Yourself. You've redeemed us and You've adopted us as Your children. And I pray that tonight that that would just cause great praise to rise up out of our lives. That we did nothing to merit You chasing after us, but You've done it because You love us and You love Your glory. You love Your glory. So God, I pray that tonight we would see all that we have in You, in Christ Jesus, and it would blow our minds. We love You, Jesus. In Your name we pray. Amen. 
Okay, so Ephesians uh, chapter 1. Let me give you a little background on, on what Ephesians is all about, who wrote Ephesians. Obviously, I'll say obviously, some of you may not know this. The Apostle Paul wrote the book of Ephesians. Uh, he tells us that uh, in Ephesians chapter 1. And I got a new Bible because I left my other Bible in uh, Ethiopia for this guy who wanted an English translated Bible. So mine's not all like nice and like bent up, so it's kind of flopping back and forth, so that bugs me. Um, look at verse 1. We'll kind of start with the greeting here from Paul. Paul says, uh, he's writing it. It says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So there's some opening statements. You can go to this next slide here that we'll just deal with really quickly. First of all, he says uh, he's writing as an apostle. So basically, Paul is saying, look, I'm an apostle, which the word apostle means sent one. He's, he's saying basically, Jesus has given me this ministry of apostleship, so I have been sent by God. That's literally what an apostle means. Now, an apostle was typically one of the people that saw Jesus in person. Now you say, well, Paul didn't really see Jesus. Well, he saw Jesus on Damascus Road when he experienced his salvation. So a lot of people refer to Paul as an apostle. He referred to himself as an apostle, and that was the ministry he had. Paul was a sent one by Jesus, and he was sent to plant churches. And the church planter, the role of apostle and church planter, is still foundational to the church today. An apostle is not a pastor that stays in one place. An apostle is somebody that moves around and plants churches and gets churches is going and gets them running and appoints elders and pastors. That's that's what Paul did. And here's what we know is that Paul was an apostle to the people at Ephesus. In fact, if you look in Acts 19, uh, which was part of our reading if you read this week, you'll find out that Paul spent about three years in Ephesus. He planted a church there. He pastored there for a little while, but then he raised up people. He raised up elders to pastor that church and he left. And the people in Ephesus did not want Paul to leave. When he told them he was going to go to Jerusalem, they, they actually said, that's not the will of God for your life. And he said, yeah, actually it is. I'm going. And I just understand you're emotional, right? And, and so they loved him so much they didn't want him to leave. So he was in Ephesus for quite a while. He wasn't just moving around like months at a time. So he's Paul, an apostle, and then he says, by the will of God. So there's this sense that God has apprehended Paul, and he's taken a hold of Paul, and he's given him this calling. And, and I wonder tonight, as we just kind of cruise by this little, this little greeting by Paul, could you say in your own life that I am what I am by the will of God? Like there was this deep understanding by Paul that what he did was because God had apprehended him in Acts chapter 9 and had sent him forth and he had been, he'd been arrested by God and given something to do by the will of God. So you could say tonight, I'm a student by the will of God. I, I'm, a, I'm a person that works at a restaurant by the will of God. I'm a musician and I'm an artist by the will of God that God has given you something specific to do and you understand that it is His will that has apprehended you and given you that thing to do. God, Paul got that. And then he goes on and he says this, uh, to the saints. This is really interesting because he's writing to these people that he knows and he's writing this letter to these Christians in Ephesus, which this letter went to the Christians in Ephesus, but it later got circulated to a bunch of other groups. Ephesus is basically modern day Turkey. If you were to go to Turkey, you've been in Ephesus. And it was a port city. And here's what we know is that from Acts 19, because when Paul went there and began to preach, Acts 19 says that there were a bunch of guys who were blacksmiths and silversmiths and they got together and they caused not a very little riot, it says in Acts 19, against Paul. Why? Because Paul was preaching there's one true God. But Ephesus was a city of many gods, a lot like Athens that we talked about back in December. 
Ephesus was a city of many gods. One god primarily, though, was the temple of Artemis, or the temple of Diana, which was a god that was worshipped that was um, basically the offspring of Zeus and some other god that they worshipped, and they had temple prostitutes in the whole nine yards. They were a really pagan city. And so Paul goes into Ephesus and tries planting a church and starts preaching the gospel, and all these people who made their money off making gods for people out of gold and silver began to have their business go down. Because now people are worshipping the one true God that's not made out of gold or silver, and so they create a riot. So this is a pretty pagan place that, that Paul was in, and now that he's writing to Ephesus. And he says to the saints, notice this, he doesn't say to the sinners at Ephesus. He says to the saints. Here's what we're going to see as we journey through this first chapter especially, is that if you're in Christ Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, and I clarify that, if, then you're not a sinner anymore. Your identity is not sinner. You've got to get that in your head. Because what Satan wants you to think is that every day you wake up, that you're just a sinner saved by grace. Now raise your hand if you've heard that before. That is not biblically true. (laughs) If you are a Christian, you have been made a saint of God. Now, do you still sin? Yes. But you're a saint who occasionally sins. You're not a sinner just saved by grace. You're a saint of God. You're going to see that as we walk through chapter 1. But then he also says, faithful in Christ Jesus. So he's saying to the the church at Ephesus, church, you've been faithful. And that that is a key mark of someone who is a saint. Someone who is faithful. So the question is, do you find faithfulness in your life? And do you find faithfulness in the lives of people that declare that they follow Jesus and they're saints? doesn't mean you're perfect again. just means you're faithful. And so Paul kind of gives us a greeting, but then he kind of breaks into this. And here's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to walk through chapter 1 uh, as quickly as possible. And what we're going to see is a couple things. Um, we're going to see God's blessing. And we're going to see what we have in Christ Jesus. But then with every blessing, there's an attribute of God that He's communicating about Himself. There's four things we're going to see tonight. And we're going to have them on the screen. So if you're taking notes, I encourage you to write them down. For every blessing we see that we have in Christ... There is a, there's an attribute of God that God is saying, I'm giving you this blessing and I'm giving it to you for your good, but mostly for my good because I want to say something about myself. I want to say something about myself. So Paul starts out in verse 3 and he says this. Check it out. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So, so this is Paul's, this is his thesis, right? He's about to tell us, look, everything that you need to live the Christian life, you don't have to attain somehow by being holy. You don't have to work real hard. Everything that you need to live as Jesus lived, you already have. Now, I know some of you, growing up in church, you went to camp, you rededicated, 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 rededicated. And you kind of get in this mode of rededicating. And you're like, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do better. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to do all this stuff. And you feel like it's the pressure's on you. Here's what Paul's saying. Everything you need to live the Christian life, you've already got. Every spiritual blessing is found in Christ Jesus. So this is his thesis statement, man. He says, everything. Blessed be the God of our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. It literally would read, if you read it in the original Greek, it would read this. He has blessed us in the Holy Spirit with everything that we need in Christ. So here's the deal. If you're Christ following here tonight, you already have everything you need to live the Christ life because the Holy Spirit lives in you. We're going to see that at the end. Okay? So he's about to tell us what these blessings are. 
Okay, are you ready? Everybody ready? Here we go, because we're going to like move here. The first thing is this. He says, number one, the first blessing of God that He's going to lay out for us is that God has chosen you for salvation. God has chosen you. Now, let me just say this from the get-go. These verses are some of the most fought-over, controversial verses in the Bible. Okay, People talk about Calvinism. People talk about Arminianism. People talk about, did God choose me? People talk about predestination. And let me just say this. Paul is not writing these verses so they can be argued about. This is an explosion of joy. If you read this in the original Greek text, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, it is one big, long sentence. He would have failed grammar class. It's one big run-on. Because he's so full of joy. Have you ever been so full of joy over something that you just kind of just keep going and going and going and maybe writing? If you're writing a blog, it's like, there's no end. I do that a lot in my emails. I'm like, dot, 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 this. Dot, 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 this. And I look at it, I'm like, that's not a sentence. That is a train wreck, right? That's what Paul does. He's so full of joy that he forgets punctuation. So this is not... Paul's not writing this so that someday people can have their agendas and promote Calvinism or promote Arminianism. He's not doing that. And if your agenda is to promote Calvinism, get a life. (laughs) Alright? I've been around people that are like, I love John Calvin. I'm like, how about you love Jesus? But here's what Paul is saying. He's going to say some things. He's going to say, number one, you have been chosen by God. Paul was not a Calvinist. He didn't worship John Calvin because John Calvin didn't exist. (laughs) He just knew that he'd been chosen by God. So first thing is this. Check it out. He says this. Uh, Verse 4. Even as He, being God the Father, chose us in Him, Jesus Christ the Son, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. So He says this, He chose us. Now this is difficult for us sometimes because what basically is happening here is we see that God has looked down upon our messed up situation and He has chosen me for salvation. And if you don't believe that, here's what the Bible says. Chose, and I'm going to throw out some Greek words here tonight for us to really get the full understanding of what we're talking about. It's not because I want you to be impressed by my knowledge. I actually don't know Greek that well. I have friends that know Greek a lot, and I call them a lot. But here's what the word is. It's exlexio, which is also election. And here's what it says. Exlexio means to choose something for oneself. So literally, here's what Paul is saying. In the Father... God has chosen you for Himself. Everything that was made by Him was also made for Him. Colossians. So God the Father chose us for Himself from the cross. But it actually happened before the cross because later He says, before the foundations of the earth, ex lexio, you were chosen for the glory of God. Now let that blow your mind for a second. Before anything ever existed, before you existed, it says that somehow in God's foreknowledge, He knew He was going to bring you to Himself. Ex Lexio. Bring you to Himself for Himself. So He says He chose us. Now, here's kind of the attribute of God that we see in this, is this. That God is absolutely, 100% sovereign God. That's what He's saying about Himself. He's saying, I have the power to choose you. And here's the thing. Some of us may look at this and go, that's a little bit weird. Because at some point, and I remember going through this, when I was in college, I'd look at this and go, I like that God chose me, but at the same time, I'm not sure because it seems like God's will is overriding my will. Now, here's what we know. We know that the Bible talks about God's sovereignty. 
that God is 100% completely, 100% sovereign. He has total control. We also know that the Bible talks about free will. Man sins, and God does not make man sin. So we know that man has free will. When I was in college, one of my professors in my evangelism class, we were talking about this issue, came in and wrote on the board one day. On one side of the board, he wrote, God's sovereignty. Walked to the other side of the board, he wrote, man's free will. We were all like, sweet, we're going to get the answer and know everything, right? I'm like, people have been debating this for years. We're not going to figure it out in 30 minutes. Then he came to the middle of the board and he wrote, mystery. And he said, these two things are in Scripture, and these two things come together somehow, but I don't understand how. It's a mystery. And you will spend your life trying to reconcile those things, and it is a mystery. We know that God chooses in His sovereignty because the Bible says that. But we also know that man has free will and that Jesus desires all to come to Him. It's a mystery how those two things come together. But God in His sovereignty has chosen me for Himself. Now, I don't know about you, but that just makes me want to shout with joy that God would look down on me in my messed up situation and say, I want to choose Matt, or I want to choose Josh, or I want to choose Megan, and I want to choose them for myself so that they can give great glory to me in their redemption. Man, that is huge. But the God of the universe who is outside of time has chosen me for Himself. So he goes on and he says, yeah, God is sovereign and His will is sovereign. And we know that we have a will because we sin. And God doesn't force us to sin. Okay, But I also know that God's will is bigger than my will. In fact, if you would say, well, I'm not sure that God's will intrudes on my will. Some people say this sometimes. They'll say, well, the will of God can intrude on the will of man because then it would just make us robots. We do have our own will. But God's will is not limited like our will is limited. I'm really glad that God, in a sense, intruded on my will when I came to Christ. Because in my will, I was sinful and fallen and jacked up. And I would have never chosen Jesus. He had to choose me. Your will, here's what the Bible says... Your will and your heart is desperately wicked. It's fallen. It's jacked up. You do not love God. It says that. No one loves God. No one seeks God. Before Jesus comes in and chooses you for Himself, you do not care. You don't care. And God in His love has chosen you. Now, if you just have chosen, you just have this God who's up in the sky arbitrarily choosing people, but that's not what's happening. He moves on and he says this. Check it out. Um, verse 5. Actually, the last part of 4, verse 5. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So, he says, first of all, God has chosen you for Himself. But this choosing is not just some arbitrary thing that there's this big God up in the sky and He's just like checked out. No, it is this Father God who has chosen us for Himself. But here's how He's done it. He's done it through, through adopting us as His sons and His daughters. Basically, the picture is this, that we're these spiritual orphans or these strangers that have wandered far from God like Ben sang tonight. And what God does is He looks down throughout time and He says, I know that they have wandered and so I want to choose them for Myself. But this choosing is not some far off distant choosing. This choosing is God 
adopting us as him as his sons and daughters. So so here's what he says in verses five and six that God predestined us, and he predestined us for what? He predestined us before the foundation of the earth that we would be adopted and brought into his family and made his sons and daughters. So verse five and six basically point to the fact that God is this Father God. So if you've got God choosing and that's it, then you're kind of like, that's weird. God's just up there choosing. But then when you see the big picture, you begin to see how this plays out, that God is this Father God. Most of you guys know because the four Jane deal that we're in the process of adopting. And the process of adopting is a long process. It's a tedious process. We spent two years doing paperwork. It's about $20,000. We're going to take a trip to a third world country. We're going to be there for a week. All for a little girl that has done nothing to merit that. Jane, whenever we meet her, has done nothing for us. We don't even know who she is yet. She's done nothing for us. Yet, out of our love, being compelled by love, we said, there's this little girl that doesn't have a home. There's this little girl that's orphaned. And so we want to step into her reality and bring her and make her a part of our family. That's what Jesus has done. Compelled by love, He said, I'm going to choose someone for myself, but the way in which He does it is this adopting Spirit of God. Where He says, you were once a spiritual orphan, and now I'm going to take you in, I'm going to adopt you, I'm going to make you a son of the King, a daughter of the King. You have a place at the table now. You once were outside, you once didn't have anything, now you're in the house, and you have a place at the banqueting table someday. You can sit with everyone else, because you've been adopted by God. Man, this is huge. And here's the deal. Some of us, we walk around not really living out the full extent of our salvation because we don't realize the full extent to which our salvation was given to us, that God stepped in our reality and adopted us. If you're adopted by God, here's, here's a couple things that that means. For me to be adopted by God, number one, means that my worth and my identity is not wrapped up in what I do. It's wrapped up in what God's already done for me. Jane, when she comes home, will be given a new name, Jane, a new last name, Setliff, and she will be ours, ours based nothing on what she's done, but based on what we did for her. So that means this, Jane can never cease to be a Setliff because she didn't do anything to be a Setliff. We did everything. We acted on her behalf. And that's what Paul's saying. God has acted on your behalf. So if you realize you've been adopted by God, you can never be unadopted by God because you didn't do anything to get that. You did nothing to get that. He adopted you and His family based on not your merit, but His merit. His goodness, His grace, His mercy. Why? Because He wants to get glory. He's the Father to the fatherless. Third thing He says is this. Moving on. He says, God's chosen you, so He's sovereign. Uh, He's adopted you, so He's His Father God. But then He goes on and says this. Look at at verse 6. He says, This is to the praise of His glorious grace, in which He's blessed us in the Beloved. Verse 7, In Him we have redemption, through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and in all insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in heaven and all things on earth. Okay, there's a lot going on there, so we're going to break this down. Everybody ready? I know you just got back from spring break, and I'm like throwing all this stuff at you. Okay, get your your thinking head on. Here we go. 
Verse 7 says this, In Him we have redemption. So God is choosing, but He's just not arbitrarily choosing. He's a Father who's adopting. But the way He does this is by redemption. Now there's this ideal about redemption that it is this buying back of someone. You may have heard this illustration about redemption. Satan owns us and he is a slave owner. You may have heard this before. Satan owns us, he's a slave owner. Jesus is the guy who comes to the auction block and pays off Satan so that the slave can be set free. This is an imagery that was taught for a long time and you may have heard it before, but it's actually not true. Jesus is buying us but He's not setting us free or having to pay the ransom to Satan because Satan never owns you. The redemption is not from Satan to Satan. The, the cross was not to pay off Satan. The cross was to satisfy the wrath of God. Satan never had any control in that area. It was the fact that you were controlled by sin. And so here's what he's saying. You've been redeemed. Now check this out. He uses this word redemption and he says, look at verse 7 again. In Him, Christ Jesus, we have redemption through what? The blood of Jesus, the forgiveness of our trespasses or our sins, according to the riches of His grace. So here's what he says. You've got this redemption where Jesus has paid for and bought you at a price. And the price was this. Nails to His hands, nails to His feet, beatings on His back, muscle and tendon being ripped out of Him, His blood was the ransom for your sin and for my sin. And that's how He adopted us. That's how He chose us. That's how He redeemed us. So you've been bought from something. But what the truth is, is that you've been delivered from something. The same word for redemption here is a, a, a similar word that's used in the Old Testament when the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt. And here's what Paul is saying. In the same way that the children of Israel were delivered from bondage and captivity in Egypt, Jesus Christ has set us free from bondage and captivity to sin. You have passed through that and you are no longer in that if you've been redeemed by Jesus. Now here's a crazy thing about redemption. In the Old Testament, they had a thing called the scapegoat. You may have heard of this before. Once a year they had the Day of Atonement. And once a year the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood of a lamb, a perfect pure lamb, on what was called the mercy seat of God, making atonement or forgiveness for the whole nation. Tough job, right? Then they would take a scapegoat. And the scapegoat's job was this. The mercy and redemption and mercy seat part was the lamb, the blood of the lamb. But the scapegoat, would he would come out of the Holy of Holies, the high priest, and he would pronounce over the scapegoat all the sins of the nation. How would you like to be that goat? Right? All the sins of the nation on a goat. And it was symbolic. He would pronounce the sins of the nation on the goat, and then they would send it off into the woods. Typically, they would elect someone to take the goat into the woods. What began to happen was, basically, they saw this goat as taking their sins and running off with them so they would never see him again. It was symbolic of what God was supposed to do and would do through Jesus. But what would happen typically is the goat would find its way back to the camp. When you saw that goat coming, you did not want to see that goat coming because it symbolized your sin coming back to you. Right? So they, they elected uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Bob or somebody uh, to go out and take the goat. And basically, he was supposed to take the goat and kick it off the cliff so it would never come back. But if he didn't do his job, it would be very evident when everyone's sins came traipsing back into the camp. Lamb chops tonight. Yeah, yeah. 
But here's the point. is Redemption is this. Jesus has sprinkled His blood and He is the scapegoat. He, all of your sin has been pronounced over Him and He has taken it as far as the east is from the west. You've been redeemed. Now check this out. The thing about this is that God is this, this lavishly loving God. What motivates God to do this? Well, look in verse 7 again. He says this, In Jesus we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. And He lavished all of this on us with wisdom and insight, making it known the mystery of the will of God. So basically Paul says there's this mystery that was, that was mysterious for all of these years, but now it's been made known to you, and that is this, is that that scapegoat and that lamb and all of those sacrificial things for all of those years were pointing to Jesus. Every year when you would do Passover, it was pointing to Jesus. When you guys took that, that, that lamb and you broke it and you, you cut it open and you took its blood and you put it over your doorpost, it was pointing to Jesus. All of those things were a mystery until now because now Jesus has redeemed you for good. And here's the really cool part. The Greek word for redemption is um, lutrosis. But here, they add an ap lutrosis to it. Now, that doesn't mean anything to you. It didn't to me until I read about it. Ap is like supersizing any word in the Greek. It's like if I were to say, I'm going to fix the car, but I'm going to really, 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 really fix the car. So when you add an ap lutrosis to it, it's basically you've supersized your redemption. And here's what the word is. is basically ap lutrosis. The redemption of God is final, it's permanent, it's irrevoca- irrevocable, irreversible. It can never be turned back. It can absolutely never be turned back. Your redemption is done. Now how do we know that? Well, Paul continues on. Check this out. He keeps going in his big long Greek sentence and here's what he says. Look at verse 11. In Him, in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So here's what he says. You being chosen, you being redeemed, you being adopted, all of it culminates in this verse 11 through 14. So don't miss this. He says, you've gotten an inheritance. Now basically, he's saying this, that someday... All of us will have our parents will die, our grandparents will die. That's not something we want to think about. But many of you in this room have an inheritance that's been built up for you that someday you will get because you're a member of the family. I just learned that most of my inheritance was spent on a business that my father-in-law did not do well at. That was encouraging. But we have an inheritance in Jesus that doesn't go anywhere. And here's what Paul is saying. You've gotten this inheritance because you've been adopted into the family. You've been chosen by God for His pleasure. You have been redeemed by God from sin and into the family. So now you have something, and it's this inheritance. And, and he tells us what this inheritance looks like. He moves on here. Look at the rest of verse 11. Actually, verse 12. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel or the good news of your salvation, and you believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of the glory. So, he says this, You've been chosen by God for Himself and for His pleasure. You've been adopted by God. You are now made a son or daughter of the king, and you did nothing to merit that. He's now your father. You used to be an enemy of God. Now you're a child of God. 
Then he says this, not only are you chosen and adopted, but you've been redeemed by God. The blood of Jesus has pulled you out of darkness and into light. But then he says all of this culminates in this big thing called sealed. He says you've been sealed. And and here's the attribute of God that he's kind of proclaiming here, is that he's a faithful God. Check this out. I'm going to read it to you again. In Him we've obtained an inheritance. So you've gotten something because you're in Jesus Christ. And we've been predestined for this. According to the purpose of Him, Jesus, who works all things to the counsel of His will. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. So in Him, when you heard the word of truth, he's talking to the people at Ephesus, he's saying, we preach the truth to you. He said the same thing to you. Whenever you heard the word of truth, right? Whenever you heard about Jesus for the first time, whether that was VBS or whether that was junior high or high school or whatever or two years ago, whenever you heard the word of truth, here's what he says. The gospel of your salvation and you believed, you were sealed. Now let me explain this for a second because the ramifications of this are huge. He says all of your chosenness, all of your adoptedness, all of your redemption has been sealed up in something. Back in Middle Eastern culture, basically when you would send a document, when you would sell something, when you would send a letter, anytime Paul sent one of his epistles to a church, they always would seal it. When I was in China last summer, some of you guys that went to China, uh, we got these stamps that had our names on them. It was really cool. Like they would go and engrave your name in Chinese. And I'm not real sure if it was my name in Chinese because it's like three letters, Chinese letters. I'm like, sweet. The guy could have just been writing the same thing over and over. I'm like, hey, Chris, your name looks like my name in Chinese, you know. But they're basically these stamps that Chinese artists will stamp things with or people in China will stamp letters with. Well, the same concept was going on back then. And anytime someone would send something or a king would send a decree, they would seal it. And it was a seal that wasn't just a stamp. All we have is a stamp. It was a seal that would go into the paper and ingrain the paper and change the paper. So you couldn't rub it out. You couldn't change it. You couldn't take it off and put another seal on there. It was in the paper. And here's what Paul is saying. He's using this language, and they would have understood this. They would have understood this, reading it back then. Is that in Christ Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, we have been sealed. Our chosenness, our adoptedness, our redemption has all been sealed. Why is that important? Here's why it's important. Because there's going to be days when you wake up and you don't feel like a Christian. Anyone with me? There's going to be days where you wake up and you're like, I am the, the worst, lousiest follower of Jesus in the world that has ever existed. Paul had those days. In Timothy, he said, I am the chief of sinners. Probably had a bad day that day. When I realize that my chosenness and my adoptedness and my redemption is sealed up, that changes everything because I'm going to have bad days. I'm going to have bad days. I'm going to have days where I say things to people I don't want to say where I look at something I don't want to look at, think about something I don't want to think about, have emotions I don't want to have towards people. But when I realize that all of that is sealed up and it's not dependent on me, it was dependent on God in the first place, so there's nothing I can do to lose it, it's sealed. He stamped it, He's marked His seal on you, and here's what the seal is. He says the seal is the Holy Spirit. Now, I know for some of us this isn't anything new, but for others of us who haven't been following Jesus very long, this may be something that is new to you. But when you became a Christ follower, Jesus deposited deposited all of Himself in you through the Holy Spirit. Here's what Paul says. He actually says that. Look at, look at this verse again. 
Check out verse 13. In Him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is a seal. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So what does that do? Verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance, what we talked about a second ago, until we acquire possession of it. So basically what he's saying is this seal is the Holy Spirit. So when you and I become believers, when we accept the salvation and the redemption of God, and when He chooses us and adopts us into His family, He deposits His Holy Spirit in us. The Holy Spirit does a couple things. It convicts us of sin. It calls us to righteousness. The Holy Spirit guides us. But here's the biggest thing that Paul says it does. It seals you for eternity. Meaning this, you cannot do anything to lose your salvation. That's a big question sometimes. Can you lose your salvation? Can't you lose your salvation? Some people say to me, well, that person says they're a Christian, but they don't really live like a Christian. My response is they were never a Christian. If the Holy Spirit lives in you, you will progressively begin to look more like Jesus. It's impossible not to if the Holy Spirit is possessing you. The Holy Spirit is a seal, and He says He's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the possession of it. Until the possession of what? Until eternity someday. Until heaven. Until I get the fullness of what Jesus has offered to me. Because here's the reality. is Jesus has saved me, but at the same time, <clears throat> I am in the process of being saved. I am in the process of being made to look more like Jesus. And so Jesus has basically said, you know what, Josh, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit and I'm going to deposit it in you so that on those days where you don't really feel like a Christian, you know that you know that you know because I have sealed you with the Holy Spirit and that is irrevocable. And it's a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. Whenever I go to a hotel to stay somewhere, they typically ask me to put a deposit down. Because if I put a deposit down, the likelihood is I'm going to come. And here's what Jesus is saying. I have given you an irrevocable deposit that I am good for what I say I'm going to do. And there will be a day where we will look exactly like Jesus because He's conforming us to His image. And that's what it says in the first couple verses. He's chosen us in Him to be holy and blameless. What's the end goal? That we would look like Jesus. Signed, sealed, delivered for His glory. Right? Absolutely for His glory. So that's a lot, right, to kind of unpack here. You've been chosen. You've been adopted. You've been redeemed by God. And all of that's sealed up in the Holy Spirit. If you're sealed in the Holy Spirit, here's a couple things that it means. Number one, you have protection from demonic powers. Nobody who is sealed in the Holy Spirit can be possessed by a demon. They can be oppressed, but they can't be possessed because the Spirit of God possesses you. If you're sealed up in the Holy Spirit, it means this, that you have guidance from God every single day for every single decision that you have to make. If you're sealed up in the Holy Spirit, it means this, that sin does not have to have victory in your life because you have all the power of God living in you. Next week, we're going to see that all the power of the resurrection lives in you. And yet we live these victorious, little, weak Christian lives sometimes because we don't understand who we are. See, He chose you and He adopted you because He's Father and He redeemed you because He's loving and He sealed you in His Spirit. Why? He tells you why. Jump back up a couple verses. Verse 6. Why did He do all this? Does, is it because He loves you? Yes, He does love you. 
but primarily he did it because of this. To the praise of His glorious grace. You are to the praise of His glorious grace. Meaning this, that you have been redeemed and chosen and adopted and sealed up in God so that someday everyone will look and go, look at what God did. Look at what God did to Matt. This jacked up guy that he's chosen and adopted and redeemed and sealed. Look at what God did. Not look at what Matt did. Look at what God did. And someday everybody will be in awe of God to the praise of His glorious grace. You get to be that. And that is pretty amazing. Here's the thing that we won't spend a lot of time on. Go to the next slide. The cool thing about Ephesians chapter 1, and you see it all throughout the rest of Ephesians, is this. The Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I want to just kind of show you this, and then we'll be done, and Ben's going to come back up. But basically... Next slide. Yeah, (laughs) thanks. Basically... Uh, you see the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit kind of all throughout. Uh, Check out verse 1. Basically it says this, Blessed be God and Father, there's Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, every spiritual blessing, the Spirit. Verses 11 and 13, Him who works all things according to His will, Father, to hope in Christ, the Son, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, the Spirit. Verse 1, 17, God, the Father of glory, Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, Son, a Spirit of wisdom and revelation, the Spirit. It goes on and on and on. Here's what you're going to see is this trinity is being worked out not just in the first chapter of Ephesians but all throughout Ephesians. There's this motif or this theme is this that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are working as one to accomplish your salvation for their glory. For their glory. You say, what does all this mean for me? It's a lot of stuff going on. What does it mean for me? It means this. When you realize you've been chosen, and you realize you've been adopted, and you realize you've been redeemed, and you realize you've been sealed, and you didn't do anything to deserve any of that, what should that cause us to do? It should cause me to love God more than I love anything else in this world. It should cause me to want to do anything that God asked me to do, because He has gone to great lengths to save me when I did nothing to deserve it. And it should cause me to cherish Him above everything. It should cause worship to spring up out of our lives. When I sit down and think about the fact that despite my messed upness, that's a word, that God chose me and He adopted me and I'm His son now and He redeemed me from my sin and all of that is sealed up in the Holy Spirit that I have the power of God living in me every day, that blows my mind. That should cause us every week to come to church and be like, I don't get it, God, but I love you because you've adopted me and you've chosen me and you've sealed me in your Holy Spirit and you've redeemed me. We should be crazy worshipers for God. Crazy. Like every week the roof should come off these places because we're a people who were living in gutters. We were strangers. We had wandered from God and He adopted us. I guarantee you this. Jane... When she finds out where she came from, we'll be very grateful. She'll be very grateful that there were a group of college students that said, We want to bring you home. We should be one million times that grateful to a God who saved us from the gutter and adopted us. So we're going to worship now. Let's pray.
Jesus, uh, I don't totally understand why you chose me or us. I don't totally understand why you adopted me or us. I don't really understand why you paid the price for our redemption to set us free. But God, I'm thankful that you did. And God, I'm thankful that you sealed all of that up in your Holy Spirit and you've given us this deposit of our inheritance that is with us all the time, yourself. And God, in all of this, you've, you've given us yourself. So Father, I pray tonight you would take some pretty big theological ideas and make them make sense. I pray we wouldn't get lost in it but we would cling to the simplicity of being chosen by You, those of us who follow You, that we cling to the truth of being sons and daughters adopted by You, that we cling to the truth of being redeemed through Your blood, and the hope that the Holy Spirit gives us that someday You're going to fulfill everything and we're going to look exactly like You because You are conforming us to Your image. You've chosen us to be holy and blameless. God, I pray that as we worship here and as we leave tonight and worship with our lives, that it would reflect gratitude as people who lived in the gutter spiritually that have been called to the banqueting table. Not based on what we did, but based on everything that You did. So Father, as we worship, would You just inhabit the praise of your people. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship in response to what God has done.